And yet, as a prophet of the Lord, the whole story of the book of Jonah is somebody who messes up, who gets things wrong. Even when he carries out his ministry, as we shall see next week, he does it, let's say, with less than enthusiasm, and then is not happy with the results. So let's turn in your Bibles, and I'm sure some of us have been eagerly looking to try and find the book of Jonah. If you look into the bits after the Old Testament, after you know the big prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you come to books like Daniel and Joel and Amos, then Jonah's sandwiched in between the book of Obadiah and the book of Micah. Now remember, there's an index at the beginning of your Bible, and it gives you the page numbers, and some of us have got different page numbers for different Bibles, and so I appreciate it's not always easy to read out the number because it might not be your number. But nonetheless, it's sandwiched between the book of Obadiah and Micah. It's sandwiched in a section of the Old Testament in a range of prophets whose calling was usually to speak God's word of warning to God's people, both the northern kingdom, I'm not going into all the, the geography of that today, we've touched upon this often in the past, the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. After, after David's son Solomon died, the kingdom of Israel split into two, there was a civil war, a short civil war, there was a larger kingdom, Israel, the northern kingdom, and there was the southern little rump state of Judah. And the story of the Old Testament, the book of Kings, is that the northern kingdom of Israel went off the boil as far as God was concerned right from day one. And continually we hear of them saying that kings were appointed who did, not do, who did that which was not right in the sight of the Lord. And Jonah is one of the prophets who spoke into the kingships of that era. I'm not going to ask you to look this up because I know how confusing it is if we start jumping about the place, but I'm going to read you some verses from the second book of Kings that tells us of the prophet Jonah and his appearance in the royal court within the kingdom of Israel. In the second book of Kings in chapter 14, we read this. We read that Jeroboam II became king in the capital of Israel, Samaria. He reigned 41 years. We we're told he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn away from any of the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He was the one, however, who restored the boundaries of Israel from Lebo Hamath to the Dead Sea in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under the heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, son of Jehoash. And so here is Jonah speaking a word to the royal court. So he's in there. And he's speaking a word actually in this context of promise, even when things seemed to be going all wrong, God was going to hear their cry and was going to deliver them from their enemies for that season. And under a godless king, he did that. God uses all sorts of people to fulfill his sovereign purposes. And Jonah is involved in that, Second Kings chapter 14. If you want later on, you can read that for yourself. And so, what was the setting politically? Well, the setting was that little Israel, little Judah, were under pressure. 
you want to read that section of the book of Kings, you'll see that. The rising star. Today we talk about China being the rising superpower in the world, and, and the West having to try and work out what does that mean. And perhaps we've seen some news things about that this past week. Well, in the days of Jonah, it was a kingdom or an empire called Assyria, basically taking in Syria, as we understand it, stretching down into parts of Iraq and into parts of what we know as Iran or, or Persia. It was a big empire for the day. It in turn was eclipsed by the Babylonian Empire, which in turn was eclipsed by the Persian Empire, which in turn was eclipsed by the Greek Empire, which was in turn eclipsed by the Roman Empire. Empires don't last. And that includes the Empire of the West. I think we need to bear that in mind. History tells us that empires rise and fall. And the West, our understanding of the West, in history, apart from anything else, is destined to be eclipsed by some other power. What that power will be, time will tell. That's a warning to us, not to put our trust in princes or presidents. So Jonah is speaking in that time. And the little nation of Israel had tried to buy off Assyria, actually by stripping out the, the golden tools and equipment and sacramental things in the temple, selling them off, basically selling the family silver in order to try and build, buy off the king of Assyria. But Assyria was on the rise. It was a pagan nation. Nineveh was a byword for godlessness and was seen as the symbol of all that was wrong. And yet, we read this. Jonah chapter 1. And we're just going to read the first three verses. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. In the ancient world, there were two great seas, well, three great seas in a sense, that seemed to define the ancient world. There was the Mediterranean, and that was the center of the ancient world. On the coast of Assyria and of Nineveh, there was the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean and the unknown lands beyond that. And at the other end of the Mediterranean was the exit out into the Atlantic and the unknown worlds before that. You can almost imagine the Flat Earth Society, you know, like a tea plate. And basically that was it. And you either went off one end and fell off the side or you went that way and you fell off the side. And here is Jonah being called to go to Nineveh, to go towards the Persian Gulf, to go towards the Indian Ocean, to go towards that extremity of the known world. And so what does Jonah decide to do? Well, he decides to go to the very opposite end of the known world. He decides to sail, we're told, for Tarshish. That is towards the far end of the Mediterranean as it channels out into the Atlantic. Basically, to go as far away from where he was meant to be. And he did that, we're told, because he just simply didn't want to do it. He didn't want to do what God said. 
Now, we're going to see later on, of course, there was all sorts of reasons for that. There's all sorts of very obvious reasons. Why bother even preaching to these Ninevites about God's judgment? After all, they deserved it. Let them get what God wants. I'm not going to go and preach about it. Just let it fall down from heaven. Burn them up. Get rid of them. And that'll save me doing the trouble. And later on, we'll see that there was very deep prejudice in Jonah against the people of Nineveh. We can all think, oh no, not them, possibly. No way. They're beyond the pale. They're beyond any understanding of grace or of mercy. I'm not going there. And it's also true that no doubt Jonah was fearful. Let's be honest. As a Jew turning up in Nineveh, he would have stood out both in terms of dress. Other people of the Syrians were Semitic people, so the appearance maybe wasn't so obvious, but dress, and in particular his language, the way he would have communicated the things he was going to say. Let's be honest, none of us would want somebody coming to the door, knocking the door and say, by the way, God's judgment's on your house, and any minute now fire's going to fall from heaven and burn you up unless you repent. No, but that's not exactly, let's be honest, who wants that kind of job? It's not overly attractive. There aren't great prospects. You're certainly not likely to be welcomed. No. But he doesn't simply say, I'm not going to do it. He physically seeks to withdraw himself from God's presence by going, as I say, in the opposite direction. Now, of course, that was foolish. Karen has already very helpfully reminded us of that reality. Just read the verses that Karen was referring to where the psalmist, Psalm 139 says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I set on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. It was foolish, but he did it. And here, this is a prophet of the Lord. Now, it doesn't take a major Bible expositor I'm sure in our own minds and own hearts we can see the application of that ourselves. An unwillingness born out of fear, born out of prejudice, born perhaps out of a sense that, well, if I do this, I'm going to fail, it's not going to work out, or whatever. There can be a whole myriad of reasons, some more justifiable than others, but the reality is the life of faith, if we truly are on it, there will be times when we do sense God speaking to us, perhaps not as directly, maybe we don't have a vision from the Lord, but through a sermon, through our own daily readings or devotions, through the words of a hymn, yes, through what somebody else might say, we sense God speaking to us at key points in our life, perhaps over the career that we should undertake or the person we should marry. Well, remember a lady in my last congregation, a lovely Christian lady who'd really grown in her faith in the time that I was there. And she became an elder within the church. 
but I remember coming to see me just before she was actually been asked by the church session to become an elder, but she came to see me because she wanted to unburden herself, and she spoke about how many years before her husband, who was a decent man and came with, him to, came with her to church, but didn't share her personal and real faith, how many years before she had known that probably she shouldn't have married her husband. I, I, mean, I wouldn't say their name, they're both dead now, but nonetheless, she used she shouldn't because he wasn't a Christian, and she was. And that sense of doing what she shouldn't have done had been with her over many, many years. And I had to encourage her to lay aside these things, to bring these things to the Lord, and to take encouragement for the story of people like Jonah and many others in the Bible, where we have done something we know we shouldn't have. There may be someone sitting in church this morning, there may be someone listening to this, and where you are spiritually, perhaps even where you are domestically, where you are in your working life, or a whole host of things, and you know deep down that God spoke and you ran away. Perhaps not physically. You didn't jump in a boat to go away to somewhere else, although people have done that. And some people will tell you they have gone across the ocean to America and other places in days past in order to escape a call of God on their lives. You may well not have done that, but you've turned the deaf ear. You've turned away. And you've set your heart and mind on a different road. Well, the reality is none of us can escape from the Lord. He knows, as the psalmist says in the very same psalm, our going out and our coming in, our rising up and our lying down. And the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And perhaps even as we reflect on that, we're having to say, and put the hands up metaphorically and say, I give in. I recognize. I accept. We say like the word of the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The road to recovery and the road to discovery of God's mercy and grace begins with accepting that we've gone off and gone away. On in the story from verse 4 of Jonah chapter 1. We'll read on in the story. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come. Let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, 
Who's responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do for you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. It must have been a bad storm. These were sailors used to sailing across the Mediterranean. These weren't inshore sailors carrying out inshore fishing, for instance. They carried trade and goods. They would have been used to sailing out over the Mediterranean, practically from one end to the other. And so for the storm to arise in itself wouldn't have been that unusual, but the story makes it clear that this was in a different degree. It was beyond what they had ever seen before. And indeed, as the story progresses, the storm progresses. The wind gets worse. The waves get greater. The depth, and you see, I was just recently on my phone, something came up and it was a sh one of these huge big, you know, freighter ships, you know, the big ones, and, and huge, enormous, and yet it was showing you in the middle, I think it was of the Pacific, and it was going down and seemed to be surrounded by the sea before it was lifted up. Well, you can imagine, if you weren't in one of these big, huge ships, but in a normal, well, in those days, a normal sailing ship, how frightening that was, and you can see that here. The sailors are fearful, but they're also conscious there is that background to the fact that nothing happens by chance. And strangely enough, even today, in our so-called secular society where it would appear for most folks, you know, God and all the kind of supernatural thing most of the time seems to be ignored, there is still built within us a cause and effect, bad things and good things, why these things happen and everything else. Well, that's here, but certainly more clarified. And that's why they asked Jonah, waking him up. And you can see the similarities. Can you remember a story in the New Testament where someone's sleeping in the boat? Yes, Jesus. And very much you can see that. How can you sleep? Get up. Maybe he'll take notice of us. Because if he doesn't, or this circumstance doesn't change, we're going to drown. It's been moving this week, hasn't it, to see people express their grief and sorrow. I mean, just ordinary people. Whether it was walking through the, their calm, relatively calm atmosphere of St. Giles Cathedral. I remember the congregation was saying he was there on 
when the evening was it and just how still it was and that sense, although people were walking, there was just that sense of peace, an opportunity to reflect. Oh, we've seen the photographs or interviews of people who have emerged from Westminster Hall, very moved, deeply moved by what they've seen. And it's brought out an awareness once again, which is already there, that, well, death is a reality. Nothing is forever. However long and faithful our queen was, she was 96. And she obviously wasn't well in the last few months of her life. You could see that even just in the last few months from photographs, how much she had deteriorated. Perhaps an awareness that, again, was heightened during the time of COVID, that nothing stands forever that the very pillars and things we look to for security, however mighty they might appear, subside and pass away. And that is meant to be. The storms of life, the circumstances that come along and would seem to overwhelm us and threaten us in our security are meant to be. For, I think as I mentioned last week, certainly mentioned in the church news letter, our extremities are God's opportunity to speak into our lives. And we see that happening here. Jonah recognizes that he's done wrong. As Christians, there has to be honesty, and at times we have to put our hands up and say, we have wronged. The church has to stand up at times and say, we have failed. And I've mentioned that often enough from this pulpit, that while we lament the state of our society, the church certainly Britain can't claim to be guiltless in all of that. We have to be honest and say, we have failed. And the solemn aspect of that is that our failure has consequences on others. The decisions we've made are not made. Our refusal to be obedient, all of that impacts not just on ourselves, but on others. Our families will suffer. Our work colleagues will miss out. Our friends will not see. Other people will be impacted. And that's a very solemn and serious thing to consider. And Jonah considers it. And that's why he says, after making a profession of faith, I am a Hebrew, verse 9, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land, he is honest enough to say, pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it's my fault that this great storm has come upon you. The wages of sin is death. And for Jonah, he recognizes that. And for the professing Christian who has wandered from God, and has perhaps made decisions that have had serious consequences on us and the life of loved ones. We have to put our hands up and confess our failure and reckon 
with the consequences of that. And all of us, not one of us, is without sin. And all of us have to reckon with that solemn truth. But the little section ends with hope. Because you see, my friends, out of the brokenness of the circumstances and of the situation, look what happens. First of all, you see that the people round about begin a journey of faith. No doubt, people cry. You know, they used to say there's no, no atheists in the trenches. Well, I'm sure in the midst of a storm like that, well, they're crying out to God. But even through Jonah's failure, his honesty, his openness, and his willingness to accept the consequences of that is used by the sovereign God to lead others to faith. Note how when they decide that they are going to have to throw the poor man out because the sea gets even wilder and the wind gets even worse. And they cry out in verse 14, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. And the raging sea grew calm. And at this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. My friends, maybe we're praying desperately for a fundamental change in lives of loved ones and people round about us. We pray earnestly that they might come to faith, that they might be transformed by the grace of God. And we yearn for that, genuinely so. But perhaps the story of that conversion begins with us accepting our failure. recognizing our sin and our need of a Savior so that others might also know the amazing grace of God. And lastly, I would have spent maybe a couple of weeks on this, but our Blessed Majesty passed on last Sunday, so I'm having to, <laughs> having to speed up a wee bit. So, because we've got communion in a fortnight's time, so let's pick up in verse 17. I do have a plan. You, you know, it might surprise you. I actually do have a plan, you know. It's the best laid plans, you know. So, verse 17 of chapter 1. Now the Lord provided a huge fish. Notice it wasn't a whale. It's just a huge fish. It must have been pretty big. To swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said... In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled, swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth became beneath, barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, 
brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's, turn, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. To be thrown over the side of a ship in the midst of a raging storm would seem to spell death. But then for Jonah, perhaps in his deep awareness of his sin, he knew this is what he deserved. The wages of sin is death. We stand before a holy God, and by nature none of us, none of us, have a right or a claim to that mercy and grace that would forgive us unless God should sovereignly and providentially provide it for us. We are all destined to go down into the pit. And Jonah, and we can only imagine it's a terrible experience to drown, I believe. But he imagine just sinking down and just... And then suddenly, love lifted him. You see, my friends, how we thank God that we come before, yes, a holy and just God, and the consequences for our sin is solemn and serious, but we also come before a God who delights to save, who goes down to the abyss, who rescues the sinner, and who sets upon us a new song in our hearts, a song of praise to our God. It is the writer of the book of Hebrews, who speaking about Jesus Christ said, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to him. And if you're in church or you're listening to this and you feel, yes, I made those decisions or I didn't do what I should have done, and it could have been a whole range of things. God alone knows. He knows your heart. Everything about our lives is known by Him. Remember once, I've told you this before, in Carmel, we had a, we had a christening service, a baptism. There were some visitors there, some young folk, and we were about to carry on. And for some reason, I can't remember why, we were touching upon this. And it just shows how long ago it was, back in the 1990s. And so I got a wee bit carried away. And I said, do you know, I said, that there's a videotape, that just shows how long ago it was. There's a videotape of your life, pointing to the ones that were having a wee bit of a carry on in the back seat of the church, of your life. And on the day of judgment, it'll be shown all the angels in glory. I tell you, they didn't move about much after that. <laughs> but he shows it. And he knows it. So that we might do the very thing that Jonah did. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. 
From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Yes, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. The currents swirled about me, the waves and the breakers swept over me. And I said, I recognized I have been banished from your sight, and yet I will look again towards your holy temple. Because when my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you. And perhaps this morning, we need, yes, to stop running away. We need to be honest before God and perhaps before others about our failings and our failures. And own up and talk openly where that perhaps needs to be the case. And we may see things happening, and we may certainly sense in our society that perhaps it's going down into the pit of all sorts of economic and social and political chaos. Storms are raging. It's not just the millions of people in Japan fleeing before a terrible storm that reminds us of the power of nature and the God who commands the winds and the waves. also the need to remind us of our frailty and our need of God's mercy. And perhaps we too need to say, what I have vowed, I will make good. And I will say, salvation, deliverance, comes from the Lord. Jonah was in the belly of a big fish or Jesus was in the tomb. And when he was buried and went into that place, and the Apostles' Creed reminds us that he descended into hell. When he entered into that tomb, not just that stone cave, but into that place of death, and desperation, and desolation, and decay. He did that as the Lord of glory, as the Prince of Peace, as the man of sorrows, as the suffering servant, so that we will have a Savior. He was able to reach down and lift us up and put a song of praise and thanksgiving into our hearts. Death could not hold him. The gates of hell could not prevail over him. The Savior died, yes, but rose again triumphant from the grave and now sits at God's right hand on high, all-powerful to save. I was sent a little cartoon thing during the week by a minister colleague, actually somebody from down south. And when I say cartoon, I don't mean a funny thing, just that it's the style, you know, the style. And there's a picture, and a picture of the queen. Well, it's the back of the queen. We can recognize that in terms of the size and whatever else. And, and she's looking sort of forward to doors, a door that's open. And in the door, you see the silhouette in black of, well, he's got a crown on. <laughs> 
You don't see his face, but he's got a crown on. And as the light shines through him, he's standing like this. Then out on the pathway leading to that door is the shape of the cross. And what's the queen doing? She's got her crown in her hand. And she's flinging it down. Perhaps as our late majesty lay in bed those last few days, and certainly over those last few months, she may have quoted or remembered these verses. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple, for I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Do you know that hope this morning? Have you made peace with God to do with things in the past that still impinge on the present? Then now is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts, but hearken to what the Lord, God Almighty, is safe.